Oh, there's a pen. Um, who here, just a quick show of hands, has met someone like properly famous? I don't mean like Liverpool famous or your street. Properly famous. Okay, wicked. Um, keep your hands up. Ruby, who have you met? Paul McCartney. That's pretty famous, isn't it? Pretty famous. Can anyone top Paul McCartney? I'll oh, go on, Taylor. Who have you met? Mary Berry. She's proper famous. Go on. Who else had the hand up? Who else has met someone famous? Or have you been completely outshined now? Yeah, go on. Who have you met? Jim Broadbent. He's got a lovely voice, hasn't he? Anyone else? Anyone met the Queen? No? Anyone met Rick Astley? No, you haven't. Actually, met Rick, he's met Rick Astley. Wicked. Um, when you meet someone famous, like, it gets you some things, doesn't it? It gets you, like, bragging rights a little bit. It gets you, like, the ability to, when, when that person appears on TV, you can tell your story about that person. Um, one person on our staff team, Emily, who's our ops director, has met Michael Bublé you know, Mr. Christmas, and, and every Christmas she loves to recant any time he's on the radio, oh, the time I met Michael. You know, you start naming him by first name basis only. And then they have a little bit more inside knowledge, don't they? So I often want to ask questions like, oh, what did he smell like? Because she was really close to him. Like, he looks like a nice smelling man, doesn't he? He doesn't look like he would smell bad. So like, what does Michael Bublé smell like? Who knows? But Emily Nelson knows, so if you want to know what Michael Bublé smells like... The thing is, is that um, there's a real difference, isn't there, between when you meet someone famous, but when you actually know someone famous. Like, is anyone, I won't ask who they are, but is anyone, is anyone like related to someone famous or like know someone who's a friend who's actually famous? Anyone? Yeah, a couple of people, right? And so the way that they would speak about that person would be very different to if one of us just met them, right? It'd be a bit cringy if they went around telling all the stories about their mate or the person they grew up with who's now famous. I met someone quite famous recently, um, I say a couple of years ago, when I was still working in London. Is this guy? Ron Perlman. He's pretty famous, isn't he? Yeah, he's pretty famous, pretty famous actor, yeah. If you've watched any program that he's in, you shouldn't have watched it. It's, they're all bad. Um, but I, I saw him, he was eating a sandwich, minding his own business, walking through Kensington in London. And I went, ran up to him and was like, are you Ron Perlman? And he was like, I am. And so then we had this wonderful chat. And now anytime he pops up on the TV or you hear his voice in a computer game, I'm like, oh, me and Ron. We had that 10 minutes together. We were walking down the high street. It's very different, isn't it? Talking about someone that you've met who's famous rather than actually knowing them. And I want to talk a little bit today about John 12, and I want to pose that there's a huge difference between inviting Jesus into your home and inviting him into your heart. A massive difference. There's a whole load of difference between people who meet Jesus and people who accept him as Lord and Savior. There's people who think Jesus is a good guy and they're a fan of Jesus, and then there is a massive difference between those people who choose to follow him. And we're going to look at a story in John 12 where, John, where Jesus encounters loads of people and their responses are wildly different. So if you've got a Bible, then flick it open, otherwise it'll come up on the screen. But just to recap before we get in there, Jesus, just a couple of chapters ago, healed a man born blind. And we go through our Bibles and we often just kind of glaze over that and think, well, Jesus, of course he did that stuff because we're used to it. But we've got to realize that this is the first time in all of biblical history that someone has healed a man born blind. And so there's something that Jesus is doing here in his miracles. He's not simply going through his box of magic tricks. There is something that he's doing here. And then the next chapter, he gate crashes a funeral and calls someone out of their grave who have been dead four days and says, come out, Lazarus. 
And so then we have Lazarus going back to his home with his sisters, Martha and Mary. And then we pick up the story in John 12. It says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, we'll get onto that in a minute, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus, on Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the, man, and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on accounts of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So we have this well-known story, if you've been going to church for a little while, this act of extravagant Worship And worship is simply the things that we give worth to. So you might worship in some form or another when you go and watch the football or when you go and watch your favorite band. You sing songs, you raise your hands, you lift them up. And then when we come to church, when we're worshiping Jesus, we're giving him worth and saying, you are worth dot, dot, dot. And for some, it might be you're worth like half a song. For some, it might be you're worth like 40 minutes and more. For some, it might be like you're worth not just my songs, but my actions too. But how we worship Jesus is dictated in those moments. And the primary way that people throughout scripture and even today worship is through words or prayers in song or in silence. But worship also comes throughout scripture and today through the way that we handle our money or our possessions or our efforts or our work. And here with Mary, there's a really interesting thing going on. There's almost this desperation, this urgency that this one who has come to dinner needs to be worshipped. That this one who has raised Lazarus from the dead needs to be worshipped. And there's almost, you can imagine the scene, there's kind of this scrabbling around. Now, if you've ever been to someone's house and they have small children and you're a guest at their house, it's a bit like that. The kids like run up to you and they bring you all the random rubbish that they have, right? They, like the gifts that they've bought or the, the bit of craft they've made. And they're like, oh, do you want to see this? And then they scurry off back to their bedroom and then they come back and they bring another thing. Oh, I've made this bit of Lego. And then they go off and then they come back and oh, I've made this bit of artwork at school. And you have to kind of go nod and go, oh, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? And you kind of have the, imagine the scene where Mary, Jesus come and she's like, we need to honor him. We need to honor him. She's noticed that the, the ancient Jewish um, uh, rite of as, as a guest comes, you wash their feet. You clean the dust off their feet, the, the stuff they've been carrying around. You clean that off as a sign, say, you're welcome in this house and you're honored. She's noticed that hasn't happened. And she then goes scrabbling around. She's like, we need to, work. We need to honor him in some way. And she's like looking around, I don't know if she had a bedroom, but she's looking around her room and like, oh, I don't know, is that a bit of pottery? Is that a good gift for you? No, maybe not. Those chocolates, I re-gift that? And oh, I don't know. And then she's running, and then she sees that nard, which again for us, like, the what? But this perfume, this perfume that's used in an act of anointing someone who is dead, this perfume that is so fragrant that it covers over the stench of death and decay. This thing that we're told is worth a year's salary. It's a bit like I, I get this... Um, 
I'll let you into some, some of my trade secrets. But um, I don't use like aftershave. I use this stuff called oud. It's like a, a Middle Eastern oil. And all you need to do is like put a tiny bit on and you smell quite nice for the rest of the day. It's a tiny bit, but it's expensive. It comes in little vials and you just rub it on. And so like Mary's got this oil, this stuff that's going to like cover the fragrance of death when it comes. And she's like, it's the only thing. It's the only thing I can do. It's the only thing I've got. It's the only thing that I've got that's worth something. And so I've got to give it to Jesus. She, pint, she pours over a pint of this stuff over his feet. And it's meant to be weird for us. This isn't normal. Most people washing people's feet with water. This isn't a normal act. She doesn't stop there. She goes, she unties her hair, a, a symbol of being undignified in, in, in ancient Jewish culture. She pulls out her hair and suddenly starts to um, wash Jesus' feet with her hair. This is a weird moment. There's something going on. It's so weird. It's so weird that not the crowd, the crowd don't get offended by it. The crowd all throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament, is kind of um, defining those outside the, the, the inner circle, those outside they don't get offended by it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees don't get offended by it at this point. They're the ones that we boo and hiss at like pantomime, right? They don't get offended by it. It says this, one of his disciples, one of the 12, one of the top team, one of those guys, one of his best mates, they get offended. Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor. It was worth a year's wages. Isn't this all a bit much, Jesus? Chill out. Mary, Mary, like, don't. Just get one of those oud bottles. Just a little dab will be fine. He'll smell fine after that. Maybe mix it with water. Let's water it down a bit. Not all of it. Half a pint at least. Isn't this all a bit much? When we gather for worship, isn't it all a bit much? Like 10 minutes is fine. Let's get to the good bit, the talk, of course. Let's get to that stuff, the stuff that we get fed. Isn't it all a bit much, Jesus? The circumstances around me, Jesus, are so overwhelming and so chaotic. The relationships in my life are messed up. My finances are in a mess. It's all, isn't it all a bit much to worship you in this moment? Lazarus has just been raised from the dead and, the, and, the, and it's clear that tensions are rising. Isn't it all a bit much that at this point in time we're going to um, give our, our security away? That thing that resembled a year's wages, the thing that we, we kept in case our job failed. That bit of money that we stashed away just in case everything failed. Isn't it all a bit much that we give it to Jesus? And I want to confess something to you that I think there's been times quite often in prayer or worship where I'm in the Judas camp. I'm like, isn't this all a bit much? Shouldn't we just kind of do a bit, enough, and then, and then just keep moving? Isn't it all a bit much? We've been there. We've been there, whether it's a time of prayer or a time of worship, a thought of like, come on, and let's get to the word, the bit where we receive, the bit where we can get our notebooks out, the bit that's gonna feed us, the bit that's gonna help us rather than just giving God praise, rather than just worshipping Jesus while he's present with us. There's a recent study um, across American and English churches 
where people had gone around and they had uh, got people who are new to church, who hadn't I- explored church at all. They got people who are new to church and they asked them to take a timer and to tell them when they were clocking out, like psychologically or when they wanted to leave the service. And, they, and these, these, scienti- the scientists, these, these people who did the survey um, found out that 21 minutes of worship is enough. Like 20, when you get to 21 minutes, if you get to 22, then at that point, guests want to like move on to the next thing or leave the building. And so what's happened since that, that was kind of published about five years ago is loads of churches all over the place have gone, our worship sets are going to be no more than 21 minutes. It's like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Because we're all in the, in the Judas camp. Like, is, isn't it a bit much? <laughs> isn't it a bit much? Is it just, you know, should we just move on to the next thing? The thing is, worship we're scrabbling around the bedrooms of our life going, what do we give Jesus? Do we give my efforts? No, that's not good enough. Do we give my lifestyle? No, because we're broken there. Do we give our emotions? No, because they're all frazzled. Do we give my thought life? No, because that's broken. The only thing we have to give to God, the only thing we have to give to Jesus is our worship. It's all we've got to give him. It's the only thing that's worthy. It's the only thing we can give back to God. It's the only thing that he's waiting for us to give him back. He's not impressed by anything else. He's not impressed by anything else. The zeros in our bank account, he's not impressed by our works. He's not impressed by efforts. The only thing he's waiting for is our worship. We can give him 22 minutes, surely. We can give him 23 minutes, maybe. But I've definitely been in the Judas camp. And then later in the chapter, what then happens is after this, is we have the age-old story, which you'll remember from Sunday school if you went to one. But it's the story of Jesus coming to Jerusalem as king. It says this, the next day the great crowd that came for the festival, which is Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it was written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The thing is, we're told that this anointing that happened at Bethany, this washing of Jesus' feet, happened six days before Pentecost. And so then we're told this happened a day later, so five days before Pentecost, uh, Passover, sorry, not Pentecost, four, but five days before Passover. And what happened in the time of Jesus, five days before Passover, is the king would come in to the, um, to the temple to make right for worship, to make, make sure the space was right. He would go around and do inspections to make sure that the, the festivities were ready, to make sure everyone was ready to welcome people from all over the world to worship um, at Passover at the temple. And at the time of Jesus, there was a king in charge, a guy called King Herod, who was like a puppet king. He was kind of used on behalf of the Romans to keep the Jewish people um, peaceful. And he would operate in all kinds of ways, but he definitely had all the baggage of a Roman. So he would walk around like a Roman. He would speak like a Roman. He would, um, he would have an entourage like a Roman king. And what's fascinating is that when you track the journeys that these two would have gone on, if you look at an ancient map of Jerusalem, the two journeys they would have gone on, it looks like this. There's a little map. So Bethany is out on the right there. I couldn't quite fit it on the map. But Herod's palace is there on the map where that arrow goes. And so you have on one side of the city, Herod coming in. And he would have come in with all the splendor of a Roman king, with a horse, a bit like Prince Ali Ababwa in Aladdin. You know, all the, all the horses, all the dancers, all that stuff saying there's something big moving into the temple right now. And then on the other side of the city, you have Jesus on a donkey as people are grabbing 
palm fronds and thrown them down. Now, that was a symbol in Jewish culture going back to the Maccabean revolt that happened 150 years ago where the Jewish people expelled, um, uh, uh, expelled enemy forces who had taken control of the temple. And they, so putting down these palm fronds as symbols of peace. And in other gospel accounts, we're told that people took out their outer garments and threw them down on the floor. And your outer garment in the time of Jesus was a thing that resembled your livelihood. So you could see by someone's outer garment what kind of profession they were involved in. And so as Jesus comes, in to the temp- uh, comes into the city, the only response people can give is, save me. Save me and we need peace. We throw down a palm front. And you know what, well, even my external identity, even the thing that people know me for, even my, even my employment isn't enough. You need to save that too, and I'm going to throw that down in front of you too. And so Jesus trots in on a donkey. The only time that we would see in, in the Bible kings, uh, um, kings riding donkeys is in peacetime. Because Jesus is saying that even, even while our circumstances not look peaceful, I am the prince of peace. I'm the one who brings peace. I'm the one who's going to bring peace. And not the kind of peace that you experience when you're in like a, a waiting room um, with that nice panpipe music or when you're in a lift and there's no one else in there or, or like kind of in a library. It's not that kind of peace. It's the kind of peace that's going to redress all balances. The kind of peace that's going to restore all things. The kind of peace that means that your emotional health and your spiritual health and your physical health, all things are going to come and be reconciled to Jesus Christ. There'll be, there'll be a time, we're told in Revelation, there'll be no more war, no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears coming from eyes. That there'll be a time when true peace will be experienced. And so as Jesus coming into the temple, he's saying, this is the kind of kingdom I am the one who's leading. This is the kind of kingdom. My kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Lord, save us. Save us. Now, what does this have to do with worship? Well, I think this first point is that the only way we can worship extravagantly, the only way we can worship like Mary, the only way we can have confidence to to throw everything down at the feet of Jesus is if we know that we're in need of saving. Because I think if we had been able to get Judas on a chair and really interview him, really grill him, I think he probably got to a point where he didn't think he was in need of saving anymore. Where it was all right, you know. I've got it sorted. Whereas Mary was very aware that she was still in need of saving. That even though this one had brought Lazarus out from the dead, did impressive things around them, personally she was still in need of saving. And I don't know about you, but I know that's true for me, that I'm definitely in need of saving. That my works aren't good enough, that my efforts aren't good enough, my spiritual resolutions aren't good enough to save me. My relationships aren't good enough to save me. My identity isn't good enough to save me. My passions and my calling isn't good enough to save me. The only one who can save me is Jesus Christ. And I'm in need of that saving. I'm in need of it. So the first thing is we need to know that we're in need of saving. Then Jesus, as he's into the temple now, he gives a big, he gives a big sermon now, I don't know if we've got any budding preachers here, but if you were invited into a, um, into a big old church and said, give your best sermon, I don't know what you'd speak on, but Jesus decided to speak on his death, which is a pretty um, bleak way to start. But John, John 12, 27 to 28, it says this. Now my soul is troubled. And this word troubled comes from the Greek under attack. He's feeling like he's under attack. My soul is troubled, he says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason 
I came to this hour. Instead, Father, glorify your name. I think what a prayer. What a prayer, no matter what circumstance. If we're facing death itself, Father, glorify your name. If we're, the circumstances around us look bleak, Father, glorify your name. If we're feeling compromised at work, Father, glorify your name. If that relationship that we're going through feels like it's on the turn, Father, glorify your name. It's an incredible prayer. It's short, but it does everything. Father, whatever I'm going through, just glorify your name. Again, the second point is this. We can only worship God, Jesus extravagantly when we know that he has saved us. Ultimately, he's done all the work that's needed to be done for us to be saved. There's nothing we can add to that. We don't behave our way into his saving books. We don't resolute our way into his saving books. We don't read our Bibles in a way that gets us saved. We don't do the spiritual stuff in order that we may be saved. He has done it. It is finished, he says, upon the cross. The, the checkbooks are balanced. No longer do we have to strive to get in his good books. He has saved us. And when we get that, when we realize that we, we don't need to struggle to be loved by God, we don't need to strive to be loved by God, when we understand that, we feel freedom to worship him fully. Because I think some of us hold stuff back because we know that we're filthy sinners. We know that we keep on messing up. We know that we keep on doing things that separate us from the love of God. We know that we keep on doing that stuff. And so actually, I can probably sing one or two songs, but give me three or four, and actually that feels a bit more exposing. But when we know that we've been saved, when we know all the work has been done, when we know we can't add to that, then an outworking of that is to worship him fully. Not just with our songs, but with our lives too. Not just with the things that are, are comfortable and convenient and the Sunday stuff, but also our Monday through, through Saturday stuff. When we see the stuff in the corner of our rooms, when we see the stuff in our bank accounts, when we see the stuff that we hold dear and, and signifies for us security, they can be platforms to worship God again. Father, be glorified. Father, be glorified. Father, be glorified. Jesus continues in his teaching in, in John 12. And he says this later on. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. You know, he's pulling no punches about who Jesus is. Jesus is not saying, like, I'm just a good guy that's following the work of God. He's saying, if you look at me, you see the Father. Jesus is saying, if you look at him, you see God Almighty, which is a bold claim. Most wise teachers say, don't look at me, look at God. Most teachers throughout history have said, don't look at me, look at God. Jesus is saying, if you look at me, you see God. And then he goes on to say this, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who, who believes in me should stay in darkness. So he's carrying on a mission. He's not saying I've just done and completed the work on the cross, but he's saying I'm gonna be a companion that anytime you are in darkness, you'll be able to see light because Jesus is with you. And so the third point is this, that we're able to worship Jesus extravagantly when we realize that Jesus continues to save us. So he has saved us, we're in need of saving, but he continues to save us. He's not just leaving us on Calvary and saying, well, I've done the work, therefore you can just stay as you are, but he continues to daily pull us out of those cycles when that thing rears its head above water again, when that thing that traps us down, when that thing that attacks us again, Jesus is like, no, I'm still with you, I have not left you. 
I have not forsaken you. I'm still with you in the darkness. I am the light in the darkness. I'm the one who's going to travel with you through that darkness. I'm the one that's going to be with you in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm going to walk with you every step of the way. Whatever circumstance you're going through, I am the light in the darkness. And therefore, he continues to save us. When we understand that Jesus is with us, continuing to save us, our only outworking of that, our only possible outworking is to worship him and thank him for it is to give him all the glory, all the praise, to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that even me, even me and my stuff, you haven't left alone. And you know what I love in this chapter? There's a wonderful little detail that we often gloss over. I mean, I did until planning for this. But we're told this little insight about Judas Iscariot, right? Now, Judas Iscariot, his, the, name, the last name Iscariot literally means the betrayer. And now I don't think that was his actual last name. Otherwise, that would have been a red flag, wouldn't it? Like, I don't know if ever you've seen on like a dating app, like Mr. Like ben, the con man. You're kind of like, you're going to move past him, aren't you? Like, if Jesus is looking for his 12, unless, unless that was his last name, and then Jesus' grace has just like tripled, hasn't it? But what I love about it is we're told by the disciple John, who wrote this, that everyone knew that Judas was putting his hand into the treasury and helping himself to it. But there's not one moment in the Gospels where Jesus gets his chief financial officer, Judas, and says, you're fired. So Jesus, just get, <laughs> Jesus knew that Judas was helping himself to the money and yet he still kept him in post. Now, what does that mean? I mean, we might not be stealing from the coffers of God, but we're certainly messing up, aren't we? Like regularly. And still, he keeps us in post. We might be messing up in all kinds of ways, sometimes the same way over and over again. And we say the prayer, Jesus, that's the last time, I promise you. And then we mess up again and again and again. We think, well, you know what? I can't worship you because I'm filthy because I'm dirty, because I've done stuff. And yet still, Jesus keeps us in post. He's not marching us to the boardroom to say, you know what, we've checked the accounts, and because of your filthiness, no longer are you allowed in the inner circle. He's like, no, he's still there. He's still there. It's an incredible sign of grace. That even to the end, there was always an option, an opportunity for Judas to come back. There was always an opportunity for Judas to come back. And some of us have discounted ourselves and think, well, you know, when it comes to worship, whether it's worship in song or worship in our life, we're like, well, I'm okay with Jesus being a fan because it doesn't really change much, right? We get actually, we get quite a lot of benefits having Jesus, being a fan of Jesus. Because you come to church, we see loads of friendly people. We get nice coffee, we get a cookie, uh, whatever. <laughs> you know, and you know, when stuff's going really, really wrong in our lives, we might have some people around us that gather around us and say, oh, you're doing all right, mate. All that stuff. It's quite nice. But there's a whole load of different inviting him into your home than inviting him into your heart. A whole load of difference. Because the minute you invite him into your heart, you can't do anything but worship him. And that means that everything changes. That means the way we navigate changes. It means we become way more forgiving of people because you realize, oh, we're all broken. We're all messed up. It means you don't hold on to grudges anymore because you realize our debt has been paid by Jesus on the cross. Therefore, everyone else's must have been. 
It means that we start to look at people in a different way. It means we start to see those pints of nard or whatever it is in your life that you hold most dear. And you're like, this is an opportunity to worship God. This is a moment where I can honor Jesus by using this thing. But here's the kicker. Do we invite him into our homes? Do we just know loads of stuff about him? We might even talk about him just using his, you know, we might call him J-Dog or something. I don't know. You know, the big J. You know, do we just talk about him like you talk about Michael Jordan or like you talk about any other celebrity? Or do we know him in our heart where where we feel the confidence to lay everything down, not out of obligation, but because we know it's the only sensical and logical conclusion. If he's given everything to be with us, the only response we can do is reciprocate that and give everything back. It's how relationships work. If you know anyone who's married, you know it doesn't work. If one person gives only 90% and the other person's giving 100%, it doesn't work like that. You have to give 100% both of you. It's how it works. And so as Jesus gives 100%, Our only response is to try and give 100% back or or do we allow him to change us from the inside out to truly lead us? The thing is, is every person in the New Testament who accepts Jesus Lord, their initial response is not to go on some Bible course. Their initial response isn't suddenly to grab their wallet and see how much can I give to the church now? Their initial response isn't suddenly to get involved in a group or a team. All those things are wonderful and good. But their first response is always to hit the deck, knees down, and worship him. And worship him. And so when we worship, whether it's on a Sunday or at home or on the commute, we are engaging in the only sensical thing that we have to offer back to God. We're engaging in the only thing that makes sense to give back to God. The only thing that makes sense to give him the glory, to give him the honor, to give him the praise. And as I said a few weeks ago, all we're doing is we're practicing for eternity. And we ha- I had someone a few months ago come and say to me, I'm really sorry I'm leaving the church. And I was like, cool, that's cool. Um, how come? And they're like, well, the, um, the worship just goes on a bit too much. I'm, like, I'm really sorry. I said to them, but um, we're told we're going to be doing it for eternity. So like, Ugh. it's a bit awkward if, you know, 20 minutes is a bit much. Um, but like, all we're doing, we're practicing for eternity. But what we, what we do is, as we worship, things change. People's hearts change. People get healed. People get set free. Things happen. The fragrance, as we're told, the fragrance fills the room. And there's something beautiful and almost overwhelming if you're not if you don't go to church and you come in and see all these people singing, it's a bit weird to start with. I remember I didn't grow up going to church. I remember the first time I walked into a church and everyone was singing and hands were raised and I was like, what is going on? But after I got over that, I started to see that something strangely beautiful is happening. Like it doesn't make sense in Liverpool, in L18, to all gather in a random building that was built in 1914 to sing songs. Like if you take it by its parts, it doesn't make sense. We're all doing it. Why? Because we all know we're broken. We all know we're in need of saving. I mean, even the nicest people in the room, you do too. You're in need of saving. And so we worship because we know we're in need of saving, but we worship because we're in response to what Jesus has done, that salvific act on the cross, the thing that has saved all of humanity on the cross. But we also worship because he's on the continuing business, the ongoing process of saving us, of redeeming us, of saying, I haven't left you yet. 
I'm not done with you yet. There's still so much to be done in your life. The best is always yet to come. That it wasn't in that big top when you became a Christian or in that small group when you became, that wasn't the best. The best is always yet to come. It wasn't when you're on the staff team or the, the gap year at a church or, or you were doing some really great mission work for when you're in a youth group or whatever. And now the best is yet to come. And so we worship in response to that. But Jesus has not left us. He's not gonna leave us. And until eternity begins, when he is with us in the fullness of his presence and peace is reigning, our worship is all we can give him. And everything else flows out of that. So the thing is, is Judas's question is not a bad question. It's just in the wrong order of things. If we give to the poor without worshiping Jesus, then we're just probably doing it to make ourselves feel a bit better. When we do it out of worship, when we start with worship and then giving flows out of that, generosity becomes an outworking of our worship because we're doing it in response to what Jesus has done for us. It was not a bad question, it's just in the wrong order. Let's get the right things in the right order. If someone put it like this in a book I was reading a couple of weeks ago. Like the great commandment to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you ask anyone outside the four walls of a church, what is the church great at? They'll tell you things that fall in the second half of that great commandment. Like isn't it great that the church does loads of good things that basically look like loving your neighbor? But I think we need to get back to being known for how we worship. Being known as a people that despite circumstance, we worship. Despite the ongoing um, whatever in our culture is going on, whatever is going on, we're still going to be people of worship. Despite whatever we're de deconstructing our minds, despite whatever's going on in our lives, we're going to continue to worship. We're going to be a people that worship and let the fragrance of our worship fill the room. Let the fragrance of our worship fill our city. Let the fragrance of our worship propel Jesus out into our streets, marching in a donkey where peace can be proclaimed and our city can be transformed. Let us be people of worship. Worship first and all the action stuff comes next. And so in response, spoiler, we're probably just going to worship for a bit, if that's all right. And we'll have our prayer team that will be down here on, on my left, your right. But, um, so if you have anything you want prayer for, they'd love to pray for you. But I think what we should do is just worship. Does that make sense? <laughs> Logically. Good. Let's stand. Um. I'm going to pray. and um, I just wonder, maybe, maybe you're new to church or you haven't been for a little while or stuff has been going in your life and you realize that Jesus is has been a good house guest, but you haven't necessarily invited him into your heart. And I'd love to give you the opportunity tonight to, to make the 7th of January, 2024, the moment where you said yes to Jesus. It might be yes again, or it might be yes for the first time. And so we'd love to pray for you. And um, I'm just gonna pray. And if, if, that, if you fall into that category, then just pray these words in, in the quiet of your heart. Jesus, I thank you that you came for me. I thank you that you came to save me. I thank you that you haven't left me, but you continue to save me. And so Jesus, I'm sorry where I've let you just be a house guest, but not an inhabitor of my heart. 
I'm sorry where I might have been a fan but not a follower. I'm sorry where I might have just spoke about you as if I know you but I haven't got to properly be with you. So Lord, would you enter my heart as you're standing at the door knocking, would you enter my heart 